your precious name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat, and as you sit down, you can take your Bibles out and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Um, I, I found out, I didn't realize this, that Friday is called, this last Friday, it was called a Quitter's Day. I, had anybody, has anybody heard of it? I'd never heard of that. And, and basically is what it is, it's, it's statistically, at this time every year, 50% of us give up on our New Year's resolutions. Like, they're just, they're done. We just quit. And, and that, the pessimists among us are like, that's why I don't do New Year's resolutions. So we just end up quitting. So, so welcome to uh, Quitter's Weekend. So after the service today, feel free, eat chocolate, drink pop, and try to figure out how to get that gym membership off of your credit card. <laughs> and uh, Amy, and I, Amy and I started a Bible reading program together this year, and it's chronological through the Bible, and we've been in Job. And, and the, the lady that does like the podcast and YouTube kind of thing that goes along with the Bible reading program goes, you're not allowed to quit in Job. <laughs> you just need to get through and keep going. And so we're like, don't quit in Job. Keep going. So what's, what's that have to do with anything? Not much. I just thought it was funny that Friday was Quitter's Day. And we are not quitting the Gospel of John. We're going to keep going. And we're going to make our way through this. We're going to be in John all the way through Easter, and there is so much truth for us to mine out of these pages. So today is John 12, and this passage, I I call this passage kind of the grand finale of Jesus's earthly public ministry. Uh, And in in this chapter, we're going to see this this kind of cross-section of responses from all different kinds of people, and it's all going to culminate here at the end, in Jesus' final appeal. And so what we're going to do is we're going to allow these different responses to kind of guide us through this chapter, okay? So let's do this. We've got 50 verses to cover. I went a little long in first service, so we're going to try and keep it on track this service. And, but we're going to get through it all because it's so good and just hit on a couple things as we go throughout. So uh, John chapter 12, let's look first at the first 11 verses. It starts this way. Six days before the Passover. So we're in the last week here, Passion Week. Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. I love how John reminds us of that. Lazarus, you know, the guy Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a a dinner for Jesus there. It was a dinner in his honor, and Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table, the tables would have been low. Think about it like this, you almost laid on your side kind of, you propped yourself up with your arm and ate and your feet kind of pointed out away from the table. Okay, verse three. And Mary therefore took a a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John tells us he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. 
And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. He reminds us again. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. All right, first response that we see here in this chapter is this. Martha serves. Verse two, Martha served. Uh, Every time we see this woman in the gospels, she's serving. And you know what's interesting is so many commentaries or study Bibles and different things just skip right past Martha and go straight to Mary. And it drives me crazy because this this short phrase, these two words tell us so much. Uh, In the last chapter, in chapter 11, you saw last week when Pastor Chris was preaching verses 21 to 27, we see Martha's amazing confession of faith. And now, as an overflow of that faith, she's serving. She's serving the Lord, and she's serving others. What a testimony. I mean, this is a, a faithful, godly woman. And there's much that we can learn from her. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., about two months before his assassination, he preached a sermon And in it, he said these words, listen to this. If you want to be important, wonderful. If you want to be recognized, wonderful. If you want to be great, wonderful. But recognize that he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. That's a new definition of greatness. By giving that definition of greatness, it means that everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato or Aristotle to serve. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics to serve. Listen to this. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love and you can be that servant. Martha has a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love and we see her once again serving. Is your life, is your life characterized by serving? By serving the Lord? By serving others? Uh, This word here, Served. Uh, it's the same root word, a diakonos, that's used later in the New Testament for the office of deacon in the church. So, so Martha here is this literal picture, this example of what it looks like to lead by serving, which is exactly what deacons are meant to do in the local church. And in fact, just as a side note, your elders... Um, Currently, one of the things that we're working on that we're hoping to do in the first half of this year is to install some some new elders 
here at the church so we can have a healthy rotation of leadership here. And we're also hoping to install deacons so that we can have people in our church particularly called to, commissioned to lead by serving. So as we get closer to that, closer to the summer here, we're gonna have some teaching around that. But that's just a side note. Martha, Martha serves. Next response that we see is this. We see Mary anoints. Mary anoints. Look at verse three. Here in verse three, we see, we see her doing this act. Um, during this time, uh, servants were typically responsible for assisting guests with washing their feet. People came in with dirty feet. They were walking barefoot in sandals on, on dirt roads, and you couldn't have that at the table, right? So you had to take care of it. Mary takes this servant's role, this humble, lowly responsibility on herself. And, 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 not in the typical way. It says in verse three, she uses this expensive perfume, this oil, it would have been found in India from the foothills of the Himalayas. So it's, it's rare, okay? And Judas tells us later, it's worth 300 denarii, 300 days wages. This is a, a year's worth of salary in perfume. Okay, so Indiana, the average salary is somewhere between fifty and sixty thousand dollars a year. Okay, so imagine twelve to sixteen ounces of fluid that you have in your house that's worth that. That's what she has. And often this was this was kept for burial process of a loved one. It was used for perfume, it was also used as an investment, and it may very well have been her most expensive possession and probably was passed down through the generations as an heirloom. And what's she do? She pours it on Jesus' feet. The other gospels tell us that she probably poured it on his head also, and then she broke the jar, which means I'm using all of this. But not only that, she lets down her hair which may not seem like a big deal to us, but it was a huge deal then. Jewish women were not to have their hair loosened in, in public or amongst mixed company. Loose hair was associated with a loose lifestyle. And yet she does that and then takes her hair and washes the feet of Jesus in this perfume. I mean, think about this. This would have been shocking in this room. I mean, imagine, just imagine if this happened at your next small group. <laughs> That'd be shocking, wouldn't it? Don't think that just because there was feet washing culturally at this time that it was any less shocking. In fact, because of the different things that are associated with this, it would have been even more shocking. And she, she does this extravagant act of worship and she demonstrates her devotion to and her love for and her faith in Jesus in this beautiful way that I don't even know if I can 
get across to you how beautiful it is with words. She is completely aware of who Jesus is. And she has placed herself in this humble and yet courageous posture before him. And and she would have known the potential for criticism in doing this. And yet, either fearlessly, or at least in, in spite of her fears, she does it anyway. Why? This is the Messiah. That's why. Do you know who he is? <laughs> He's at our table. And in awe, and in gratitude for all that he has done on their behalf, she worships him in this way. And then sure enough, the next response we see is this. Judas criticizes. Judas criticizes here, verses four to six. And by the way, before you're hard on Judas, I was thinking about this this week. I was like, you know, if I was there, I'd have criticized her too. He asked this question in, in verse five. He says, why, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Which, by the way, that's an okay question. That's a, that's a good question to ask. But then John fills us in and reminds us that motives matter. He didn't ask this question because he cared about the poor. He asked this question because he cared about money. He cared about him, himself. And then I love in verse 7, look, Jesus defends her. He says, leave her alone. Like she's extravagantly worshiping, and we see in 7 and 8 that chances are she even unknowingly is pointing to his burial with what she has done. As we think about this and, and Mary here, how's your worship? How's your worship in your life? I mean, Mary's worship is characterized here it's, it's, it's extravagant. I mean, she holds nothing back. It's sacrificial. It's costly. It's costly to her both financially and probably reputationally, if that's a word. <laughs> it's risky. She gives her best to the Lord and not just her, her leftovers. She is bold, it's done in faith, it's motivated by love, and it's humble, and it's so beautiful that Matthew and Mark record that Jesus says her act will be discussed wherever the gospel is proclaimed. And here we are. I asked myself that question this week. Does does my worship look like that? Does my love for Jesus so outweigh my fear of man that I will worship the Lord with my life and my possessions and my words boldly and unapologetically and unashamedly no matter the cost? Oh, that that would be us as a church. Uh, This act of Mary's is, it's nonsensical if Jesus isn't the Messiah. But if he is, and he is, this is the least that she could do. Martha serves, 
Mary anoints, Judas criticizes. Next, verses nine through 11, we see the leader's scheme. The leader's scheme real quickly. These three verses basically is what's happening is the, the chief priests are seeing, oh boy, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And now because of this, more and more people are actually going after Jesus and believing in him and they're running away from us. And so you can see the religious leaders here just spiraling out of control. They're like, okay, because of Lazarus now, this is happening. So what do we do? Well, let's just kill Lazarus too. Kill Lazarus, kill Jesus, just kill everybody. Whatever it takes, right? Because they have to follow us. They have to follow what we're teaching, not anyone else. And they begin scheming more and more and more as we get closer and closer and closer to the cross. Next, we see the crowds welcome. The crowds welcome. Look down at verse 12 here, verses 12 through 18. Um, is this account of Palm Sunday that we celebrate. All four Gospels record this, right? Look at it, let's read it. Verse 12 says, the next day, the, the large crowd that had come to the feast, the feast of Passover, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this time during this feast would swell to three or four times its normal size. Verse 13, so they took, they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, that means Lord, save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. That's a humble way to enter the city, isn't it? Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah chapter nine. And his disciples, they didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was, was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Now look at verse, look at verse 18, this is important. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign, not because they believed. That's not the reason, but because he had done a sign. So they, they were at least here recognizing his royalty in some fashion, but they're still not getting the type of king that he's going to be and how he's going to accomplish this. And in fact, many in this crowd, a few days from this point, will stop saying Hosanna and start crying crucify him. Crowds welcome. Let's keep going. Next, we see the Gentiles seek him. The Gentiles seek him, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They're like, it seems like the whole world is going after him. Little did they know what's gonna happen in the next verse. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some, some Greeks. And, and this word here, Greeks, it, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that they were Greek in their origin. It means non-Jews. So they're Gentiles. So these came to, to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and he told Andrew. And then Andrew went 
and told Jesus what's happening here. It doesn't tell us completely, but I wonder if is what's happening is these Gentiles come to Philip and they're like, hey, we want to see Jesus. And Philip's like, huh, are we doing that now? Gentiles? Like, is this happening? He's like, hold on, I got to ask somebody if this is cool. And he goes to Andrew and he's like, hey, we got some Greeks out here. Like, do we bring him to Jesus? Plus, remember at this time, more and more people were seeking to kill Jesus. And so they're maybe even here worried for his safety. And they go to Jesus, verse 23, and what's he say? And Jesus answered them and said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So far, so far in John, we've seen over and over again, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. Here, as the Gentiles, as the world is coming and seeking Jesus, as the word is getting out, Jesus says, it's time. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Okay, verse 25 and 26. Let's look at these really quick. Uh, be careful here as we go to these verses. Don't, don't read modern terminology uh, specifically regarding things like self-love and self-hate into these verses, okay? Scripture's not interested in conforming to our modern definitions of things. God communicates timeless truth through his word. We're meant to read, understand, and believe in its context, okay? So what's this saying? This is love and hate. It's contrasting language here, okay? It's distinguishing. I prefer one thing over another. So I love this one, which means that I hate the other. I love this one, therefore I renounce the other. So look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. If I, if I love, it's important. This is a question of love. If I love my life, myself, as ultimate. In other words, if I worship me, the root of sin, I will lose my life. And I'll waste it. it if I spend myself only in this life trying to make myself more, more, more comfortable and successful and safe and happy and fulfill all of my earthly desires, I'll be left in the end with nothing. I may, I may even gain all of the things in this life that I, that I want, but in the end, I'll lose it even to my own soul. And so what? Well, it's the end of 25. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What, what does it mean to, to hate my life in this world? I think verse 26 tells us. It says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will 
will honor him. And so, so love my life, lose it. Hate my life, keep it. Wait, so if I hate my life, what, what do I love? Well, that's verse 26. It means to love Christ as ultimate and to follow him and serve him. My focus and my faith is not ultimately on me, but it's meant to be on what is most worthy, which is Jesus. And if that's what I worship, I gain everything. I gain him. Like, Nate, how's that, how's that look practically? I can tell you what's not. It's not, I hate myself, I hate myself, I hate myself. It's not, I hate my life, I hate my life, I hate my life. That is not the strategy that the Lord gives you. You see, if that's your strategy, you end up making it all about yourself. And, and in an attempt to hate yourself, you're actually loving yourself as ultimate. And that is a wearying strategy. And Jesus says, my way, my yoke is so much easier and so much lighter than that. What is Jesus's way? It's simply this, love him, worship him, yield to him, obey him, follow him. He is ultimate, I'm his, I'm his servant. And you see, by doing that, by orienting our lives in that way, we actually do what is best for us. Because in orienting our lives towards him as the center of everything, we receive life. We receive purpose. And it says the Father will honor you, reward you ultimately with himself. See, what's, what's best for us is not us as the center of our universe best for us is to recognize that Christ is supreme. He is the center of life and everything. What examples do we have of that? Martha serving the Lord as an overflow of faith. Mary extravagantly worshiping the Lord, devoted to him, surrendered to him completely, and then ultimately we have Jesus. Look at the next two verses. Our ultimate example, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have uh, a record of Jesus in Gethsemane. Uh, John does not. And I think this is kind of his Gethsemane moment with the Father right here in these verses. Now is my soul troubled. Why is it so troubled? Because the grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die. And what shall I say, he says? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So Father, glorify your name. Complete. 
complete surrender. Oh, that our lives would be surrendered to him in that way. Stood with a man this last week in his hospital room. And he said, you know what? Whatever happens, I trust the Lord. And I want him to be glorified with this. Then I proceeded to watch as he was an incredible witness to the nurses, to the people visiting him. And I'm like, oh, Lord, that we, that I, would have faith like that. That says, my life is yours. I'm surrendered to you. Lord, my desire is only that you be glorified. Who is ultimate in your life? Is it you? Or is it Jesus? Are you living in your workplace, in your home, in your community, in your church, to make much of yourself? Is it all about you? Or are you living instead to glorify him with your words, your life, and your possessions, and your service? Next, we see the people reject. The people reject. Let's finish through to the end of this chapter here and start reading verse 28 again. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said, said that it had thundered. And others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered and he said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Another way of saying that, Satan loses. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's not talking about some form of universalism here. He's saying I will draw all people without distinction, all types of people in this context we're seeing, both Jews and Gentiles, anyone and everyone who looks to me crucified, I will draw to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was gonna die. So the crowd answered him and said, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. They probably uh, got that from maybe Daniel chapter seven or Psalm 89 there. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who's the son of man? And Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. The time's running out. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons, children of light. And when Jesus had said these things, he departed and he hid himself from them. Verse 37, even though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And so the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm, the power of the Lord, been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. 
For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. And Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Okay, what's happening here in verses, look at verses 37 kind of through 41 because this is, there's some difficult stuff in here. Right, so what is this? This is, this is John coming in and kind of explaining a little bit what's happening here. He's saying, this isn't a surprising rejection. Right? It, it was prophesied and predicted hundreds of years prior to this by the Lord through Isaiah. And in verse 37 there, we see, they did not believe, uh, even though they had been given every chance and shown so much proof, and yet they, they have rejected his People have rejected and rebelled against him. And this is going to culminate in the crucifixion. And everything that we see here in verse 37 shows us that they are responsible for their actions. They're responsible for their rejection of him. But look at verse 39. It says, they could not believe. He has blinded their eyes, and hardened their hearts. That should make you think back to Exodus chapter seven with Pharaoh. It says, Pharaoh hardened, Pharaoh hardened. And then it says, God hardened, God hardened. Jesus' presence and his teaching and his signs have only served to further harden them in their unbelief. And now he, he gives them over to their unbelief. Uh, remember John 6, it says, apart from God drawing us to himself, we will not believe. Uh, a theologian named D.A. Carson, he summarizes what's happening here in this paragraph in a really good way, but, the, it, but it's a big word alert, okay? So I'll explain it here as we go, but it's really good. He says, God's judicial hardening that's what this is called, his judicial hardening, is not presented as the capricious manipulation of an arbitrary potentate cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings. Okay, here's the Nate translation of that. God's just hardening that we're seeing right here in this passage. It's not being done by some, some flippant, manipulating, arbitrary sovereign somewhere living up there in the clouds where he's, he's pronouncing this down on people who are just morally pure and neutral. That is not what we see here. He finishes this way. He says, instead, this is what's being presented. This is presented as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen to do and to be. God's sovereignty and our responsibility are woven mysteriously together throughout Scripture. They are compatible in ways that we will never fully understand in this life. And frankly, I don't think we will fully understand in eternity. You know why? We're not God. <laughs> And our job 
is to see his truth, to hear his truth, to believe his truth, and to trust him with all of it. And as you feel the weight of that, look at how verse 42 turns us here towards the end of this chapter. It says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. And then sadly, though, it says, but, but for fear of him, for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And we'll see, we'll see three men in particular here as we go through the end of John, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and Peter, all wrestling with this, believing, but in fear, not confessing, not confessing him. And then the last paragraph, I'm going to read this last paragraph, and we're going to let it stand on its own as we end in worship. Jesus, the last thing that he does, his last words in his public teaching, he summarizes who he is and what he came to do in this final appeal. So right after we've talked about sovereignty of God in salvation, and you're like, oh boy, I'm wrestling with that. I'm wrestling that. Cling to this. Look at verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, here he is crying out to the crowd, belief, whoever believes in me, believes not only in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. That's a Trinitarian statement there. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world this time, that's John 3, 17, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father had told me. How do we end? In this way. Surrender. Surrender to him. If you never have today, yield your life to King Jesus. And he will give you eternal life. Christian, today anew, whatever, whatever you've got that you're just hanging on to for dear life, trying to control, thinking that it's yours, in a way, worshiping yourself in the way that you're clinging to that, today, lay it down. Surrender it. And live with Jesus as the center, to glorify him with your life. Father, as a church now, we surrender. Boy, this day when we even experience weather like we have coming in, Lord, it's just a reminder, we are not in control. You are. Help us to bow our knee to you. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to worship you extravagantly and unashamed for all that you are and all that you've done. 
And Lord, whatever we are facing currently, would you, by your Spirit's power in us, help us to pray. Father, glorify your name.